0: I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Diane Thibodeau. Dr. Thibodeau is a professor of dermatology at the Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. She specializes in the care of patients with acne and rosacea and is listed in the best doctors in America. Dr. Thibodeau received her medical degree and residency training in dermatology at the Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine awards from the Dermatology Foundation, and the NIH fostered her early research career. Dr. Thibodeau serves as the co-director for Penn State MD PhD program. She currently directs an act, in its active research program in both basic and clinical research with the support from the NIH and industry. Her area of research and interest in the regulation of sebum production and the mechanism of action of retinoids, and she has published numerous manuscripts and book chapters on this topic. Please help me uh, welcoming Dr. Thibodeau.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here and get to speak with all of you about acne and, and then also about rosacea a little bit later. I think that these are probably two conditions that you treat a lot in your practice. So I'm happy to answer whatever questions you might have. I don't think my presentations will go an hour, so we'll have some good time for questions, and I'm always interested in whichever questions you might have for me. In terms of disclosure, these are the companies that I've either done clinical trials with or have been a consultant for. And during the course of my talk, I may talk off-label about the use of spironolactone in acne. So acne is one of the conditions I think that we see most commonly. And I imagine in your practices, you probably also see a lot of patients with acne. But even though it's really common, oftentimes it's difficult to treat. It presents with um, different patient types, different skin types, patients of different ages. So there are a lot of challenges in the treatment of acne. You can have infants with acne, with the infantile acne. You can have the teenager with the more severe acne. And I think the more challenging acne, at least for me, is the adult female with acne, where you oftentimes get that chronic low-grade acne around the jawline and on the neck. So I thought I would just take a couple steps back and review with you just the differences between the the types of acne lesions. And the reasons this is important is because the different therapies that we have to choose from target the different types of acne lesions. So it's good for us to have an understanding of which medications work against which types of acne lesions. So this slide shows the the open and closed comedones, also known as the blackheads and the whiteheads. You can see here, uh, this is an open comedone or blackhead, and there is surrounding some small whiteheads. This is the typical type of acne that you get in the very, very early adolescent acne. They often present with comedonal acne in the T-zone, the central part of the face, forehead, and also on the chin. This is another example of a patient with open and closed comedones. You can see here, uh, she has very large open comedones and numerous smaller open comedones as well. Oh, I just want to make a point. You can also see with this patient, for those of you that are sitting near the front, that she has, in addition to the open comedones, she has some pores that look very large. And there are a lot of patients that have that have large pores on the nose that they view as blackheads, but they really may not be. It may just be that their pore size is large, and that could be very, very difficult to make a difference with. I think topical retinoids may help some, but it's very challenging for us as providers um, to tell our patients that, no, we cannot change the size of your pores. There really aren't any medications that will, will do that. And then you have the more inflammatory acne, the papules and the pustules. And you can see an example of a pustule here and papules surrounding them. The treatment for papules and pustules is pretty much the same in terms of the drugs that we have to choose from. This is an example of a patient with severe acne. And the forehead uh, has a lot of nodules. These are very large inflammatory lesions, usually greater than a half centimeter. I think his are probably a centimeter, uh, so you get nodules along with the, very mo- the more severe types of acne. And in, in the adult female, for reasons that we don't understand, rather than having the acne in the T-zone, it's in what we call the U-zone, which is sort of the lateral aspects of the face, the, the jaw, and on the chin. And you can see this patient has uh, inflammatory acne lesions on the neck. So what are the four main pathogenic features of acne? I think again, it's sort of the same story. It's important to understand the four factors because our treatments are designed to act against these. So you have the follicular hyperkeratinization. So for reasons that none of us understand, for um, the, the keratinocytes that line the follicle become cohesive and they're not shed onto the surface of the skin like they normally would be. What causes that? We really don't know. There's some different ideas, but we don't know exactly. And a lot of times people think, well, the pore must be totally plugged, and that's what causes acne. But that's really not the case. At most, the pores are partially obstructed. So it's usually not a full blockage of the pore. So you have the buildup of the keratinocytes in the upper part of the follicle. You have the P. acnes bacteria that colonizes almost everyone's skin. And right about prior to the time of puberty, when the sebaceous gland becomes active, when the adrenal gland starts making androgens, you have an increased colonization of P. acnes bacteria. And the reason is is that P. acnes uses the lipids in the sebum as a nutrient source. So the bacteria likes to live in an area where there's a lot of skin oil. You also have inflammation, which is caused by the P. acnes bacteria and in cases where the follicle becomes really enlarged it can rupture and all the nasty material that's inside the follicle can then enter the dermis and it acts like a foreign body reaction we have a lot of intensified inflammation when you have rupture of the follicle the other part of the pathogenesis is the production of sebum or oil and this I think is um, one of the areas that we have our greatest therapeutic need because apart from isotretinoin or, or formerly known as Accutane and apart from hormonal therapy used in women there really are no other ways to reduce sebum production. There are some reports of the photodynamic therapy using red light as possibly being beneficial in reducing the sebaceous glands but those are pretty much experimental protocols at the moment so sebum is part of the pathogenesis of acne It it contains lipids that serve as a nutrient source for the P. acnes bacteria. And as I mentioned earlier, the drugs that we use to treat acne, some of them are better at the follicular hyperkeratinization, like the retinoids. Some of them are better at P. acnes, like benzoyl peroxide. And only a couple are better at sebum production, which is isotretinoin and hormonal therapy. So I'm going to go a little bit more into detail about some of the aspects of the pathogenesis. So the propionibacterium acnes, as I mentioned, it colonizes the sebaceous follicle at about the time that the adrenal gland starts making androgens and telling the sebaceous gland to enlarge. The bacteria itself can secrete enzymes called lipases. And those enzymes can then act on the sebum to break down the uh, triglycerides in sebum into free fatty acids and glycerol and the bacteria uses that glycerol as a nutrient source. The bacteria P. acnes can also produce other enzymes that actually cause the walls of the follicle to rupture and all the nasty contents of the follicle get extruded into the dermis and really can intensify the inflammation. And I'll talk a little bit about the activation of the toll-like receptor 2 by the P. acnes bacteria. And I think I have a couple slides on that uh, coming up. So in looking at the follicular hyperkeratinization, uh, acne starts beneath the skin before you're able to see it clinically. And it starts as the microcomedo, And this is the precursor lesion of acne. So this lesion is only seen microscopically on a skin biopsy. And what you can see is that beginning of the buildup of the keratinocytes in the upper portion of the follicle. And one of the ways that topical retinoids act is that they prevent the formation of the microcomedo. So they're able to normalize this abnormal keratinization that's happening in this part of the follicle. So topical retinoids are probably the most effective agent at uh, inhibiting the formation of the microcomedo, And this lesion As I mentioned, it's the precursor lesion of acne, and it can go on to be an open or closed comedo. It can also go on to be a papular pustule. So it's a precursor lesion of acne. And patients, uh, you probably notice this a lot, because I notice it a lot, is when you start a patient on an acne regimen, most of the patients are teenagers and they think that they're going to get better by the weekend. So this time of year, you might have someone coming on a, a Tuesday and they say, well, promise is on Saturday and I want my acne gone by Saturday. And then you just have to break the bad news that this isn't gonna happen. Um, so it's important to appreciate the time course of acne therapy. Almost all of the treatments that we have are aimed at preventing the formation of acne. And the process by which acne forms takes about six to eight weeks. So once this microcomedone is forming, by the time it goes through its life cycle and develops into a clinically visible lesion, that's about a six to eight week process. So if all of our treatments are aimed at preventing this, then it's going to be about six to eight weeks before you begin to notice the effects of your treatment So just having a brief conversation with your patient, saying acne therapy is aimed at preventing the formation of acne. It takes about six to eight weeks for one acne lesion to form. So in about six to eight weeks, you should begin to notice some improvement. And the full benefit, generally, is at least eight weeks, even longer. Because um, a lot of patients think, well, I'm taking the antibiotic, I'm using the medications, I'm doing everything. It's been three weeks and I'm no better. And they come back to you and say that the medicine that you've given me is not working, I am no better. So it's important to explain the process to the patient up front. That way three weeks goes by, they're not disappointed, even though they've been being good about putting things on. So I think having that brief conversation is very helpful to the patient and it's helpful to you because you don't get put in a position that you're having to switch medications really fast when you haven't even had the opportunity to give the medication its full time to work. So during the process, the keratinocytes become cohesive. Uh, The P. acnes and the sebum build up within the follicle. It doesn't get totally plugged, as I mentioned. The follicle can distend and rupture, and then the inflammation intensifies. Oh, sorry, I must have that slide twice. So I I talked about P. acnes activating toll-like receptors. Um, Some of you may be familiar with toll-like receptors, because these are the types of receptors that a miquimod acts on. A miquimod acts on the toll-like receptor 7 and 8, I think, or maybe it's 9. But there's 10 different types of toll-like receptors. And toll-like receptors are part of your body's innate immune response to different antigens that it might encounter in life. The toll-like receptor 2 recognizes components of fungi, It recognizes gram-positive bacteria and mycobacteria. And the toll-like receptor 4 recognizes lipids in the the cell membrane of gram-negative bacteria. And what happens with toll-like receptors, no matter which one they are, is they sit on the surface of an inflammatory cell. Say it's a a monocyte, a macrophage, a neutrophil. And toll-like receptors even sit on the surface of keratinocytes and even on sebocytes. So they're always on the surface of the cell, and their job is to wait for antigens, foreign antigens, to come along from whatever, whether it's bacteria, fungi, uh, flagella, viruses. They're they're sitting there waiting for um, bad things to come along. So when you have a gram-positive bacteria, like P. acnes, um, come along, the Toll-like receptor can recognize some of the components of the P. acnes um, cell wall. And when they interact with the toll-like receptor, it starts this whole process of intracellular signaling events that send a message to the nucleus telling that inflammatory cell to make cytokines. So the P-acnes can activate the receptor and basically the cell will then produce cytokines in response. So in acne lesions, the toll-like receptor 2 is the receptor that's expressed on the neutrophils around the follicle. And what uh, Dr. Jenny Kim has shown is that if you take inflammatory cells like neutrophils or monocytes and you expose them to P. acnes, they're gonna produce cytokines in response by the toll-like receptor two. So the idea is that in the future, down the line, we might be able to develop ways that we can interrupt this signaling of the toll-like receptor two, and we may have new ways to treat the inflammation of acne. One of the questions I always have, and you might have as well, is why is it that some some patients have acne and others don't? If everyone has P-acnes on their skin, why is it a problem for some and not for others? So these uh, investigators in Japan did a very interesting study. What they did was they drew blood from patients with acne, and they drew blood from patients without acne. They harvested the P-acnes from the skin of patients with acne and did the same thing for people without acne. Then what they did is, from the blood, they isolated the patient's monocytes and they took the monocytes and they exposed them to the P. acnes bacteria and they looked at the cytokines that the monocytes made. And basically, what they found was that the monocytes from patients with acne produced more cytokines compared to the monocytes from normal patients when they were exposed to the P. acnes bacteria. So what this experiment suggests is that the inflammatory response in acne appears to be due to host response, differences in host response, rather than differences in P. acnes. So it might be, for whatever reason, some people find P. acnes just to be very pro-inflammatory, and other people may not. And that may be part of the reason why some people have acne and others don't. So we're still trying to figure that out. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about things that regulate Uh, sebum production. The sebaceous gland is uh, similar to the epidermis in a few ways. You have um, you have cells that line the sebaceous gland that are more immature and they don't make a lot of lipid. But when the cells differentiate they start making a lot of lipid and the cells get very full of lipid. Then the cells rupture and that lipid or sebum goes onto the surface of the skin. And what we're interested in in our laboratory is to try to figure out What controls the process where you have no lipid and you're making a lot of lipid? And if we understood what was happening here, we might be able to interrupt that process, have reduced sebum, and improve acne. So the sebaceous gland can be regulated by a lot of things. Uh, The retinoids, mostly isotretinoin or Accutane, are very potent negative regulators of the sebaceous gland. So isotretinoin can actually shrink the size of the sebaceous gland and reduce the production of sebum. Androgen hormones, or male hormones, can cause the sebaceous glands to increase or enlarge and produce more amounts of sebum. Estrogen, in very high doses, way higher than what are in oral contraceptives, can inhibit the sebaceous gland and reduce sebum. So years and years ago, back in the early 60s, one of the treatments for acne was estrogen. But that was such a high dose that it's not safe. It causes thromboembolic um, disease and other things so a little bit later I'll talk with you about how it is that um, oral contraceptives can improve acne and I'm not going to go much into the other factors that regulate sebum we know as I mentioned we know that androgens affect it so that's why at the time of adrenarche when the adrenal gland starts making androgens and that's usually about ages six to eight Um, that's when the androgens start being produced, and that's when you start to get that beginning of the oily skin and development of acne. So we know that androgens are important because there are some people that have a genetic mutation in the androgen receptor, and they don't make a lot of sebum, and they don't develop acne. So we know that androgen hormones are necessary for the development of acne. So I'm going to talk now about therapy, and as I mentioned earlier, the acne therapies that we have to choose from are aimed at the different portions of the pathogenesis of acne, and they're also aimed at the different types of acne lesions. And because of that, most times when we treat acne, we're usually treating them with combinations of different medications. So it's pretty rare that an acne patient is being treated with just one thing. Nowadays, we have some of those newer fixed combination products, so there may be more opportunity to treat acne patients with just one medication. So I went to a talk once and they asked me to summarize how I treat acne in one slide. I said, "Okay, I can do that. Um, So in the the beginning of of acne, the more mild type acne, I would often start with a topical retinoid. And the reason being is because it prevents the formation of the microcomedone. And topical retinoids can also um, reduce inflammation associated with acne, because there are studies that show that topical retinoids can inhibit the production of that toll-like receptor 2 that I talked about. Sometimes I'll start a patient with the combination of benzoyl peroxide and clindamycin um, as an alternative, or sometimes I'll start them with a topical retinoid and a benzoyl peroxide. If the acne is more severe, um, then I would start with an oral antibiotic, a benzoyl peroxide, and a topical retinoid, because you're working against inflammation and bacteria, working against bacteria, and you're working against the follicular keratinization and inflammation. And nowadays, we have a lot more studies, and I may be able to talk about some of them later, to show that if you actually are able to get patients to use a topical regimen that includes a benzoyl peroxide, that includes a retinoid, and they use it regularly, you can actually have a pretty dramatic improvement in the acne, but it's all a matter of the patient's willingness to adhere to the treatment. And it's all a matter of you being able to educate them on how to use the topical medications to avoid irritation. Um, So as you move down the line in terms of acne severity, uh, for a patient that's on an antibiotic, a benzoyl peroxide and a retinoid, my residents say that I always use, they call the, the it triple, the triple threat for the, for the more severe, moderate to severe acne. If it's a woman, I would then add hormonal therapy, which in the United States we mostly pick from oral contraceptives or from spironolactone. Uh, I might also consider adding topical dapsone. For the very severe acne, I would then go with isotretinoin, and oftentimes, after a patient is finished with isotretinoin, particularly if they're still like, say, younger than the age of 17 or so, then I would want them on a maintenance therapy like a topical retinoid, um, maybe with or without a benzoyl peroxide for a maintenance regimen. So that's my treatment in one slide. So what else am I going to talk about? Um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about how the different therapies act on the uh, pathogenic features of acne. So, benzyl peroxide, even though it's been around forever and it's relatively inexpensive and you can get it over the counter, um, benzyl peroxide is the most potent agent at killing the P. acnes bacteria. It works better than antibiotics at killing the P. acnes bacteria. So that's why um, you have a large circle here. And by killing the bacteria, it also helps to reduce inflammation. Antibiotics kill the bacteria less effectively than the benzoyl peroxide, and they can also reduce inflammation. The topical retinoids work really well against the comedonal lesions. Uh, They also work well against the inflammation by inhibiting the toll-like receptor two and by some other mechanisms. Oral isotretinoin is the only agent that we have that works against all four factors in the pathogenesis of acne. Oral antibiotics work against P. acnes and inflammation, and oral contraceptives work against, mostly against reducing the sebum production. So the agents that target the follicular keratinization or the microcomedone, those include the topical and oral retinoids. These are probably the best agents that work against the microcomedone. Benzyl peroxide can also help improve comedonal acne. Azelaic acid can, but it's weaker than the others. And then the uh, alpha hydroxy acids and the beta hydroxy acids, such as salicylic acid, can also help with the follicular keratinization. So these are listed in the order of potency. So the topical retinoids that we have to choose from include tretinoin, adapalene, and tazeratine. They come in different formulations and different strengths. They normalize the follicular keratinization. They can, to some degree, speed the resolution of the comedones that are already there, but that's a minor, one of their minor effects. Their major effect is to inhibit the formation of the microcomedone, and by doing such, it also inhibits the formation of inflammatory acne lesions. I mentioned earlier that one of the ways that retinoids can work against inflammation is by inhibiting the toll-like receptor 2. So there have been studies to show that adapalene and tretinoin can decrease the expression of toll-like receptor 2 on inflammatory cells. I would imagine that tazeratine could do the same thing, but they haven't done those experiments. So we're familiar with some of the fixed combination products that we have, and I've listed them here. There is the combination of adapalene 0.1% along with benzoyl peroxide 2.5%. That's known as the epiduo. There's the tretinoin 0.025, along with the clindamycin uh, 1.2, or the Ziana. And I haven't included here as of yet, but there's also the combination of tretinoin and clindamycin that's the Veltin product. And the advantage to these products that contain retinoids combined with others is that it may, it may help to improve the patient compliance. Um, one of the concerns, however, is the products that have the tretinoin and the clindamycin Here you're using an antibiotic without a benzoyl peroxide, so I might want to combine that and have the patient use a benzoyl peroxide wash or leave-on product in addition. So in terms of the agents that target P. acnes, I mentioned that topical benzoyl peroxide is the most potent. The uh, antibiotics can also reduce P. acnes, and the azelaic acid, uh, mildly so, and oral retinoids like isotretinoin can reduce P. acnes indirectly, by by reducing the sebum, which then uh, causes the P-acnes to die off. So the therapeutic effects of benzoyl peroxide, it decreases the concentration of the bacteria, it decreases the free fatty acids that the bacteria releases from uh, triglycerides, it decreases comedones, the side effects can include skin irritation. In a very small uh, percentage of patients, they can have uh, allergic or contact dermatitis. And we're all familiar with its ability to bleach clothing. So it's important when you're having a patient use a benzyl peroxide to help them figure out whether they should use it in the morning or at night to minimize bleaching of clothing. You also need to let them know that it could bleach the pillowcases, sheets, and towels. So these are things you might want to mention, because otherwise their mother will get mad at you for um, them ruining the, uh, all the linens. The antibiotics topically, we mostly have uh, clindamycin and erythromycin. They come in a variety of different formulations. And systemic antibiotics, the tetracycline, doxycycline, minocycline and erythromycin uh, can be used. These are the more standard. Uh, The doses are variable depending on the patient's acne severity. There's different formulations of the antibiotics. Uh, a million years ago, when I was a resident, we used a lot of erythromycin. We used as much erythromycin as tetracycline. But uh, since then, erythromycin, um, the P-acnes have become very resistant to erythromycin, so it's a lot less effective as it, compared to the way it used to be. And agents that reduce sebum, only two, hormonal therapy in women, and isotretinoin. As I mentioned, isotretinoin is the only agent that effectively targets all of the four pathogenic uh, features of acne and all of the lesion types. Its use, as you know, is limited by its side effects. It's a teratogen, so if a woman is pregnant and takes isotretinoin, there is a high likelihood that the baby could be born with birth defects. Uh, Other things, uh, isotretinoin can cause elevated triglycerides, and this is something that we all monitor for. There's a questionable link between depression and suicide. It's not a proven cause and effect. And same situation, there's a questionable link with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, It hasn't been proven one way or another, but there are case reports that I think we're all aware of. So it acts by uh, reversing comedone formation. It actually shrinks the sebaceous gland and reduces sebum production. And by doing that, it can reduce the P. acnes bacteria It reduces inflammation and in some patients they can have a permanent remission. And this is age dependent. So I think you need to be really careful when you counsel your patients. If you have a 13 year old or a 14 year old that's got severe acne, maybe they have a family history of severe acne and you give them isotretinoin and you say, well, you know, 85 or 90% of people that are on isotretinoin are gonna have a permanent cure of their acne. If you're telling that to a 14 year old, it's probably not gonna be true So I think the response to isotretinoin is age-dependent. If you have a a 17, 18, 19-year-old that's going to be using isotretinoin, there's a much higher likelihood that they're sort of at the end of their acne age, so to speak, and you have a pretty good chance of them having a permanent remission. The younger patient, 12, 13, 14, 15, it's debatable. Um, The adult female, absolutely not. I can count on one hand the number of times that an adult female on isotretinoin has ever had a permanent remission of their acne. For whatever reason, this age group responds very well while they're on the medication. Oftentimes you stop the medication and six months later they're back to baseline. So I would never promise an adult female with acne that isotretinoin is gonna give them an 85% chance of being cured of their acne. It just doesn't happen. So uh, in that age group, it's a little bit more difficult to manage, and I'll talk a little bit about that when we get to hormonal therapy. I think we don't often talk about the the negative things that can happen if a woman were to become pregnant on isotretinoin, and and I think you should be familiar with the types of defects that can occur. Uh, The defects are craniofacial, ear defects, dysmorphism, cleft palate, depressed nasal bridge, hypertelorism. There can be effects on the CNS like uh, hydrocephalus, microcephaly, uh, facial nerve palsies. There can be effects on the heart, uh, uh, Fallot's tetralogy, transposition of the great vessels, uh, septal defects, effects on the thymus, spina bifida, and limb reduction. So these are the types of defects that are seen um, should a woman become pregnant. And if, a, if a, God forbid, but if someone were to become pregnant, uh, on isotretinoin, I would refer them to an OBGYN because there are data on the, the likelihood of whether that pregnancy will be abnormal. There have been reports of women that have had a normal delivery after isotretinoin, but again, I, I don't feel comfortable with that data and I would send them for counseling. So there are some uh, some nuances in treating patients with isotretinoin. How many of you have ever treated a patient with isotretinoin and they got worse, at least at the beginning? A lot, right? And that that happens most times when they have really severe inflammatory acne. So someone comes in that might look like this with very severe inflammatory acne, a lot of cysts, a lot of inflammation, and even patients with a lot of inflammation and not a lot of cysts, um, you need to be especially cautious. Someone that is this bad, I would start them off initially on prednisone. Um, And for someone this size, I would even consider starting like 60 milligrams of prednisone a day for two weeks and then taper it to 40 for two weeks and taper off gradually after that. Um, Because when you start a patient like this on isotretinoin, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to have that severe flare. And I, in addition to the prednisone, I would start the isotretinoin at a low dose, like 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, or even less than that. Sometimes just like starting with a 110 milligram isotretinoin uh, capsule, to try to avoid that flare. So you could pretreat with prednisone and then add a low dose of isotretinoin, or you could start the prednisone and a very low dose of isotretinoin. And these are some. Uh, photographs from patients that have that severe acne. You can have the acne fulminans where they actually can have uh, hemorrhagic involvement of some of the nodules. And here's another patient, again, very, very se- severe inflammatory acne. You see that much inflammation, you need to calm them down with steroids because just adding isotretinoin, especially full-dose isotretinoin, they're gonna get a lot worse. Um, with isotretinoin, it does. the more is better philosophy doesn't really apply so if someone is having a flare at increasing the dose is probably the worst thing you could do so you need to proceed very cautiously I'm gonna talk a little bit about hormonal therapy of acne um, I'm just curious how many of you uh, use hormonal therapy in your practices looks like a lot okay so the indications for hormonal therapy, obviously if, if a woman has uh, abnormal hormones, either from the ovary or the adrenal gland, hormonal therapy is indicated. But it also, hormonal therapy also works very well in women that have normal levels of, of androgens. And in some women, I find that it can be a very nice alternative to needing multiple courses of isotretinoin or multiple courses of antibiotics. So we can divide hormonal therapy basically into three categories. One, you have the oral contraceptives that block the production of androgen by the ovary. So um, I'll talk a little bit about the role of estrogen later. In the subset of patients, it's a very small subset that have the congenital adrenal hyperplasia, their acne can be managed with very low doses of glucocorticoids. And what that does is it inhibit it inhibit it, it, it inhibits the feedback loop that tells the body to make more androgens. And then antiandrogens, in this country, most of us use uh, spironolactone for its antiandrogen effect. Again, that's off-label use, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Flutamide is an antiandrogen, but that's very, very rarely used for the treatment of acne. It has a lot of side effects. So in terms of spironolactone and acne, the dosage can vary depending on the patient. I usually start 25 milligrams twice a day um, for most patients, and then I can increase the dose if I need to, or if they do well, then I can decrease the dose. The frequent side effects include breast tenderness and menstrual irregularity. And it's important that a woman not become pregnant while on the spironolactone, because being the antiandrogen, if she were pregnant with a male baby, there could be uh, defects in the genitalia. And hypospadias is the, um, the defect that you might see in the male baby. So um, oftentimes, most often actually, I combine oral contraceptives along with spironolactone for a couple reasons. It it reduces the menstrual irregularity by having the oral contraceptive on board. It reduces the risk of exposure to a male baby. And it also is working by two different mechanisms. The uh, oral contraceptive is blocking the production of androgen by the ovary and the spironolactone is blocking the effect of the androgen at the sebaceous gland. So how do oral contraceptives, if, if I told you earlier that the estrogen in oral contraceptives does not reduce sebum production because the dose isn't high enough, but all oral contraceptives will reduce serum androgen levels. And this includes testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, and DHEAS, which is made by the adrenal gland. Oral contraceptives can cause the liver to make more of the protein called the sex hormone binding globulin, and by having more of this protein floating around in your blood, it will tie up the free testosterone, preventing the effects of the free testosterone. And all oral contraceptives decrease sebum production by inhibiting ovulation. So the inhibition of ovulation then prevents the production of androgens by the ovary. So that's how Um, androgens are reduced and by reducing androgen you then reduce the production of sebum. So over the years the amount of estrogen in oral contraceptives has decreased dramatically when they first became available in the very early 1960s uh, the oral contraceptives then had 150 micrograms of estrogen in them and that dose of estrogen was enough to inhibit the sebaceous gland on its own. But because of safety reasons, uh, thromboembolic disease among others um, the amount of estrogen has decreased over time and now the low-dose um, formulations contain 20 micrograms of estrogen. In the United States we have three oral contraceptives that are FDA approved for the treatment of acne. These include the ortho the Estrostep, and the Yaz, and they all have um, different progestins in them. But if, if you were to ask, any combination oral contraceptives that, contraceptive that has the estrogen and progestin, for the most part, they all have the same mechanism of action. They all prevent ovulation. They all will reduce sebum production. These three just happened to be the ones that were uh, run in phase three trials and got the FDA approval for the treatment of acne. So plenty of other combination oral contraceptives could also be beneficial in acne. For any of any of us that are using oral contraceptives in our practice, I think this is probably the most important slide. You need to know the patients that should not be prescribed an oral contraceptive. So those over the age of 35 that are heavy smokers, anyone that's had breast cancer, someone's breastfeeding, any liver problems, liver tumors. Obviously, if they've had any uh, DVT, patients with diabetes that have end organ disease. So vascular disease, neuropathy, nephropathy, uh, retinopathy, any heart disease, uncontrolled hypertension. And this is a question that uh, is important to note. The contraindication is patients with migraine that have a focal neurologic symptom and um, The aura that's associated with a migraine is classified as a focal neurologic symptom. So if your patient has migraines and aura, then the use of oral contraceptive would be contraindicated. So in a patient that has migraine without aura or without any other neurologic symptom, it would not be contraindicated. And obviously if a patient's pregnant or if they have a history of stroke. The side effects. The common side effects um, generally resolve within the first few months of use, and that includes breakthrough bleeding and breast tenderness, and if you speak with uh, our colleagues in OBGYN, they just basically reassure patients that the breakthrough bleeding, for the most part, fixes itself over the next few months. Uh, Headache, nausea can also occur. The thromboembolic events, I think, are among the most serious. So studies show that the relative risk is about three, uh, for new cases of thromboembolic disease and about 4.5 for new, pace, uh, new cases that are, have serious thromboembolic events. The risk of thromboembolic disease due to oral contraceptives is not regulated to the length of use and it stops after the, after the pill has been discontinued. So when somebody starts on an oral contraceptive, the risk of thromboembolic events is the same as, it, as if they were on it for five years. So the risk is the same for any any day that you're taking it basically. So in terms of hormonal therapy it it obviously benefits many women with acne. I think that it works best as an ongoing regimen. Um, I think treating acne with an oral contraceptive by itself um, I don't think you get the the benefit that you could get if you combined it with other treatments. Um, Oftentimes um, how many of you have been in a situation where you, you have a young, uh, a young woman, a young teenager, she's in the office with her, one of her parents, and you really feel that um, this patient's eventually going to need isotretinoin, and then you need to raise the issue of the use of an oral contraceptive or birth control? I mean, we've all been in that situation. And I think that it's important to have, the, the, have a professional approach to that that will help help the patient and their parent to feel comfortable about your therapy regimen. And the way that I approach it is that if I have a patient that I feel is probably going to need isotretinoin, maybe not at this visit, maybe in the future, um, I kind of try to lay out a treatment plan for them. I'll say, you know, you have fairly severe acne. What I'd like to try is a regimen where we'd use an oral antibiotic, a topical retinoid, and a benzoyl peroxide. I'd like to check you back in about six, six or eight weeks See how you're going, uh, if they see how are doing. If things aren't improving, then I would consider adding hormonal therapy to your regimen. And in the US, for hormonal therapy, we basically have oral contraceptives and spironolactone. If the addition of hormonal therapy isn't going to be helpful for you, then I think that we might need to move into isotretinoin. So in, in that situation, we're presenting the oral contraceptive as part of hormonal therapy of acne, which it is. So, um, this, you know, I, I've been in some situations where I've heard that the person might say, well, you know, your daughter's going to need isotretinoin and she needs to be on birth control right now. So, I think that, you know, oral contraceptives are part of hormonal therapy and I present them as part of hormonal therapy and I fully discuss the risks of isotretinoin but I let them know that, um, that we're using this as part of the acne treatment in addition to protection for the use of isotretinoin and I think that, that help, It's helpful in some situations. I'm gonna talk very briefly about laser and light treatment mostly because we don't have a lot of controlled studies and data. Um, these are some of the things that have been used Uh, the blue light, uh, photodynamic therapy, uh, which is aminolevulinic acid plus uh, different types of light. And a lot of the newer studies that are being done um, by Dr. Rox Anderson up in Massachusetts, he has some data to show that the uh, ALA plus red light and different protocols can work well for acne. The problem with those protocols is that there are a lot, a lot of crusting, a lot of downtime. So, So we're trying, he's trying to work things out to um, optimize those protocols for the treatment of acne. And you can see all the other treatments listed here. Um, but what I wanna mention is that even though a lot of these lasers are FDA approved for the use of acne or acne scarring, the FDA, in terms of devices, the FDA is mostly concerned about the safety of the device, and they're less concerned about the efficacy of the device. So when a drug goes to be approved, Um, it has to be, the efficacy has to be proven and the safety has to be proven in large numbers of patients. When devices are approved, they mostly focus on the safety and they honestly don't care too much about the efficacy. So when you try to get as much information as you can about the lasers and lights for acne, and if you find that you're having to go to the company's website to get the information, uh, it's a little bit, less desirable because there aren't a lot of well-controlled trials that have been done to show the benefits of lasers and lights. I'm hoping that as time goes on, we'll have a lot more data that demonstrate efficacy. So there's some, a lot of variation in that field right now. One of the, um, the last topics I'm gonna to t- touch on is we're concerned more nowadays about the, resi- the bacterial resistance to antibiotics. And I think that there are, there's sort of treatment uh, paradigms that are being developed that can help to minimize the use of oral antibiotics and optimize the use of some topical products. Um, this is a type of patient that you would never imagine could be managed by just topical regimens alone. But there are studies to show that they can actually um, be beneficial. Or this is a patient that you might think, well, I'll put them on an oral antibiotic and they're going to need to be on it for a couple years. So I mentioned about the resistance of bacteria. Over the years, the P. acnes has become more resistant uh, to different antibiotics that we use to treat acne. So um, there have been recent data that demonstrate that severe acne can be improved with regimens that use oral antibiotics for limited periods of time. Um, in Europe, they treat a lot of patients with acne. They'll use the antibiotics for uh, 12 weeks or so, and then they'll manage them with topical antibiotics afterward. So there have been uh, studies done, and I'm just going to go forward a little bit. Uh, the studies in the literature that look at starting patients on minocycline for, like, say, 12 weeks, uh, minocycline and tazeratine, and then stopping the minocycline and maintaining with the tazeratine, There have been studies where doxycycline and adapalene have been started together, and then the doxycycline stopped and maintenance with the adapalene. And more recently, a study with doxycycline uh, combined with the adapalene benzyl peroxide product, and then the doxycycline was stopped, and then maintenance was done with this. So there's studies to show that these shorter durations of antibiotics can be used successfully in patients. And all of those studies show this similar type of design What they did in the first phase of the study is patients got a topical retinoid with the oral antibiotic for 12 weeks or they got the antibiotic with the vehicle for 12 weeks. And then patients in this group that achieved a certain degree of improvement, then in the next phase of the study were randomized to get either the retinoid alone or a vehicle alone. And what they were able to show is that using the retinoid after this combination regimen the improvement in their acne could be maintained for quite a long time. Um, so you could look at those studies if you want to get more information on those. And this is, uh, these are some studies from the ones that are done more recently with the doxycycline and the adapalene benzyl peroxide product. So this is the patient at baseline, and this is the patient at 12 weeks of getting the doxycycline plus the topical product. And the data for the second part of this study has just recently been published, and I, I don't have that in here, but the patient was then afterward randomized to get either the topical or a vehicle, and then they looked at how long the improvement lasted. So uh, in terms of acne therapy, uh, I mentioned to you that they we use combination therapy to address each of the pathogenic features of acne, as well as each of the different types of lesions of acne. I think combination therapy uh, allows for the best efficacy. Things that work well in combinations, benzoyl peroxide, antibiotics, uh, topical or oral, dapsone, retinoids, and hormonal therapy. There's different treatment algorithms that you can take a look at and that divide acne across mild, moderate, severe, starting usually with topicals, moving into antibiotics, and then isotretinoin. And I'd just like to close to let you know that we have an American Acne and Rosacea Society. It's a society of providers and physician assistants are more than welcome to join. Um, We ask that the physician that you work with also join. It's relatively inexpensive, only a $100 membership fee. But we have a website that has educational opportunities on acne and rosacea. We have meetings that if you're interested in acne rosacea, you can attend. So if this is something you're interested in, I encourage you to visit our website. So I'd like to thank you very much for your attention. Do we have time for questions? Oh, do we? Yeah. I can't, I think it's. Are there any questions? I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. I think we have a couple minutes. Now's your chance.
2: Uh, A couple questions. Have you tried finasteride for men for acne? And what about Bactrim and the cephalosporins?
1: Finasteride for men for acne. Okay. I haven't. And finasteride blocks the type 2 5-alpha reductase. And studies in our laboratory show that sebaceous glands express the type 1 5-alpha reductase, which is not affected by finasteride. So there's really no rationale to think that finasteride would be helpful for acne. And the other question was uh, about Bactrim and which other? Cephalosporins? Cephalosporins, Cephalosporins, right. Uh, Bactrim can be helpful for acne. Uh, But the incidence of having more severe side effects is higher. Things like Stevens-Johnson syndrome, things like TEN, the incidence is higher. And over the years ago, we used to use more Bactrim. But as the years went on, we had patients with agranulocytosis, patients with stevens Johnson. So um, we really only use that in desperation. Uh, Cephalosporins uh, used for acne in patients that are pregnant. And I've used them for very limited times because cephalosporins are widely used to treat a variety of other infections. And if you're giving someone cephalosporins for years on end, um, you don't want to have bacteria develop resistance to cephalosporins. Thanks. Yes? Yes, I would uh, like to know if you could comment on uh, oral antibiotics, reducing the efficacy of birth control pills. Now that we're doing electronic electronic prescribing, I'm getting red lights and some right. warnings for everything. Right. Thanks. The, um, the question about oral contraceptives reducing the efficacy of birth control pills. Uh, data suggests that the only thing that, that will most definitely is rifampin. So uh, rifampin can reduce the efficacy of oral contraceptives. The other class of drugs would be the anticonvulsants. So someone on anticonvulsants could have decreased efficacy of the oral contraceptive. There have been case reports of women that take antibiotics and get pregnant while on an oral contraceptive. And it's very hard to separate out that incidence of pregnancy from the background rate of pregnancy where women may have forgotten to take their pills. So the risk in the other antibiotic classes is more theoretical. There are data in the OB literature that look at, you know, like the phase three trials where thousands of women were placed on oral contraceptives. And during those trials, they needed antibiotics at different points in time for whatever infection they might have had, and they actually measured estrogen levels during that study and showed no decrease in estrogen level during the period of time that the women were on the antibiotics. So the American College of OBGYN does not uh, voice a concern regarding antibiotics and oral contraceptives, but rifampin and oral anticonvulsants are important. Yes, over here. What's the youngest age group
3: you've gone with spironolactone? Um, I have had a few pharmacy pushbacks when I prescribe spironolactone for even 20-year-old females. They're calling and asking why I'm prescribing
1: that. Yeah, the spironolactone, if a girl's having her menstrual period, then I think it's fine. So even
2: down to 13?
1: If you could, but I would, I would use other, other things first. And if you're having absolutely no luck and she's a fully developed 13, looks like she's 18, um, then I would consider it. Do you check potassium? In young, otherwise healthy women with no medical problems, I generally don't. If it's an older woman, I would. If they, if they have any other medical problems, I absolutely would. There can be transient hyperkalemia, but it tends not to be uh, clinically significant. I do uh, measure uh, blood pressure, though, in those patients on spironolactone.
2: I have a question regarding the bacterial resistance and using tetracyclines. Um, in our practice, we tend to go, for other reasons, to switching between minocycline, doxycycline in the wintertime, because we live here in Virginia, um, and then minocycline in the summertime. Is there any advantage to doing that regarding the bacterial resistance issue?
1: I don't think so. No, because what happens is the bacteria oftentimes become resistant to the class of antibiotics. So whether you're using the doxy, the minocycline, and the tetracycline there may not be a whole lot of difference.
2: Do you think there's any advantage to like, doing that with um, the cephalosporins? Like, or is it just that it's not as efficacious to use the cephalosporins?
1: It, the cephalosporins tend not to be as efficacious in acne. Thank you. Yeah, You're welcome. Um, I, I just had a question about um, birth controls like Yaz and Yasmin that can increase potassium. Do you use those with a spironolactone? I'm sorry, oh, oh, whether I use oral contraceptives that have drosperinone along with spironolactone? Yes. You have to keep in mind that the drosperinone in the oral contraceptive is equal to about 25 milligrams of spironolactone. So keeping that in mind, you can then adjust the rest of your spironolactone regimen, thinking that the oral contraceptive is contributing the equivalent of about 25 milligrams. My question's kind of in line with that. Um, I have a lot of OBGYNs that actually, if the patient is on Yaz and I add spironolactone, they you know, will tell their patients, don't do it, or anything like that. So how do you address that with the patients and the OBGYN? Oh, well, just like what I just said. I said, They can be used together, keeping in mind that the drospirinone, three milligrams, is equivalent to about 25 milligrams, and that you're adjusting the dose accordingly, and that you're aware of that. That
3: that would be about all. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had a rough couple of months with acne patients in our practice. Uh, one kid developed hepatitis. One developed a positive ANA, and one got blue sclery. I didn't. Uh,
1: what? I didn't hear
3: the last one. One developed blue sclery. Blue, blue sclera. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, do you monitor people uh, lab-wise periodically if they're on long-term? Tetracyclines? Uh,
1: Generally, well, I try to avoid long-term tetracyclines. (laughs) Those were the points in my last few slides. Um, But I I generally don't. I mean, the things, if you're using minocycline, there's a risk of hepatitis. There's a risk of lupus-like reaction. There's a risk of serum sickness. All of those things can occur. They're very, very rare. But I do let patients know what symptoms to watch for. the, the blue sclera in the pigmentation most times occurs with minocycline, and that t- tends to occur in long-term, longer-term use of minocycline. So that could happen on its own as well. Yeah. Um, but in terms of laboratory monitoring, generally not.
3: Um, a lot of my patients are very resistant to the notion of taking them off minocycline. Um, they break through a little bit. They're not...
1: And yeah. topically,
3: they're not as well controlled as they were with oral yeah. antibiotics, and they will there's not a There's quit. a
1: psychology behind that, uh-huh. and it's a psychology not only for the patient, it's a psychology for the provider. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, so it, I'd encourage you to look at those three studies. The, two of them were in the archives. Um, one of them with the adapalene BPO and the doxy was in Cutis with Linda Steingold, and then the follow-up to that was... Is right now in the online version of the British Journal of Dermatology with Dr. Poulin as the author but what they showed is patients with that severity of acne that I showed actually did well with a 12-week regimen of an antibiotic and then they were maintained for another 12 weeks on the topical so it might be that in the future we might move more toward the European way of using things that you'll have like a course of antibiotics and then you're maintained with others and then should you get to a point that it's very severe again then be treated again because a lot of people Feel like, you know, I broke through, I get two more pimples, put me back on the antibiotic. And that's, that's the cycle that's, that's hard to break.
3: Do you think that's a reasonable indication for Accutane?
1: Uh, well, not always. Again, it depends on the severity of the acne. If this is a patient where two pimples come back and they want the antibiotics, and want, I wouldn't go to Accutane yeah. for, for that. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to say. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Ma'am, could you please speak to uh, your recommendations as far as therapeutic regimens you would recommend for your pregnant patients?
1: Oh, good, for pregnant patients, that's always a tough, tough situation. Um, I'd like to, well, you could use azelaic acid because it's safe in pregnancy. It's a pregnancy category B. Uh, You could use that. I think that there's more theoretical concerns and real concerns, like I, I would use benzoyl peroxides. I would also use topical, Clindamycin because I think a lot of there's not enough clindamycin to be absorbed to cause a problem It would be incredibly rare So I would use the benzyl peroxide clindamycin combination. I may use azelaic acid And if they're pretty severe then I might use a cephalosporin antibiotic Thank you. And then later in pregnancy, well actually no not later um, No, never mind It's 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 hard. It's very hard. Thank you mm-hmm.
2: First of all, thank you for your presentation. And then a couple of questions. One, are there any recent studies about whether um, dyschromia from minocycline has to do with dose or duration, to your knowledge? And the second question is, I'm starting to see a lot of younger kids um, with comedonal acne. um, And, of course, you can't get a retinoid approved, so we've just been doing samples, but any other ideas um, with
1: yeah, I think the, 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 the pigmentation with minocycline is dose and duration related. People pretty much agree on that. Um, and the second you're seeing more comedonal acne, where?
2: um, Like eight, 10 years oh, old, young that children. kind of thing, oh. and even just more severe acne in general. And a lot of times, you know, you can get away with the BPOs or that kind of thing, but sometimes they just really need retinoids. Um, how do you counsel patients on, well, you know, I can't really prescribe it because <laughs> it's not approved, but, you know, I, I think this would work well. What's,
1: What's not approved?
2: Um, retinoids under the age of 12.
1: Oh, that's just a technicality. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the retinoids can be used. Be, there are actually studies now that are looking at the use of topical retinoids in 9 to 11-year-olds. And one was recently published with the Retin-A micro in 9 to 11-year-olds. And there's a study ongoing with the adapalene BPO product in 9 to 11-year-olds. And when you think about it, um, patients that have young children with ichthyosis and disorders of keratinization, they're oftentimes treated with retinoids for those, for those conditions. So there's really no um, downside to treating a younger patient with retinoids. And there are studies that show uh, that the blood level of retinoids varies more by the diet than it does by the topical use of a retinoid. So retinoids are vitamin A derivatives. So the blood levels of um, vitamin A derivatives are more more readily influenced by the diet, like carrots and other foods that contain them, than they are by the use of topical retinoids. But getting to your other point of your question, which I think is very interesting, is about the increasing younger age incidence of acne. And that is happening. And so over the years, um, children are maturing faster than they used to mature years ago. So acne is coming at a younger age. And in fact, I was at a meeting of pediatric dermatologists recently, and they're sort of trying to redefine the terms of infantile, pre-adolescent acne. So it's a very interesting question. So nowadays, it's not uncommon to see like a seven-year-old developing comodonal acne. So things definitely are changing.
0: Yes? Oh, hi, um, I just had a quick question. I find myself in the scenario a lot where patients return for follow up and I think they're 95% better. They're not happy because of all the PIH. How mm. do you manage it from that point yeah, on? Yeah,
1: that's a very difficult question. Um, PIH. You could chemical peels can sometimes be helpful. Light peels um, using azelaic acid can be helpful. Using um, things like the uh, topical retinoid, the Triluma products, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, it's it's difficult, but yes, patients, they look at it and they feel that it's still the same acne. Right. So if you let them know that these are the areas where the acne is resolved, over time it will improve some, but those yeah. are some of the things you can try to help to speed it along. It's a very difficult problem.
0: Okay. Thank you. Thanks. My question concerns um, Accutane off-label. In an individual who cannot get pregnant, do you use it off-label to control the oil production?
1: Oh, in what group they, about pregnant? Oh. B-
0: who cannot get pregnant?
1: I'm sorry, I didn't hear you.
0: Who cannot get pregnant?
1: Oh, oh. Um, you can, you're free to use isotretinoin for the purposes that you want, but in you doing that, all the patients still need to be in the Eye pledge program. So if you're treating somebody with, active, with seborrhea using isotretinoin, they still need to be in the Eye pledge program. Um, the, the, the challenge with that comes is knowing when the end point is. Uh, like when is when you stop the medication? Chances are the seborrhea is going to come back at some point. So, are you committing someone to years and years and years of use? So that's that's the challenge in knowing how you're going to stop, when you're going to stop, and I would keep track of the dose because they show that all the bony changes and the bony problems, like calcification and those sorts of things. They, they really increased when a patient gets to the equivalent of using, like, five courses of isotretinoin. So for my own knowledge, I would keep track of the amount of the dose that they're getting. And as you got to that point, which may take years, I would be
0: concerned. Hi, I'd like to know your opinion regarding the use um, or the, the incidence with increased milk intake or diet Oh, that's a challenging question. Um,
1: Basically, there's a lot of epidemiologic suggestion, and the studies about the milk and acne are pretty much subject to recall bias. Patients were asked to to remember how much milk they drank when they were teenagers and how much acne they had when they were teenagers. Um, Some of the ideas behind the association of milk and acne might be valid, but they're not tested. There's been no prospective trial looking at... Giving somebody milk or taking milk away in terms of its effect on acne. There's only been one randomized prospective trial on diet and acne, and that was the low glycemic load diet study done by the group in Australia that showed that those on the low glycemic load diet had improvement in their acne compared to those that were on a regular diet. So until we have more prospective studies done, it's hard to say. There have been um, cases, you know, a lot of people have. There have been cases where patients have drank you know, ga- a couple gallons of milk a day and may have had acne, and then they stopped and they were better. It, it's, it's very difficult to say. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that we have, but not much um, prospective trials. And those trials are hard to do because doing a diet study, especially in teenager, it's difficult to, to get them to stick to the prescribed diet. So they're challenging studies, but hopefully we'll get some in the future. OK, well, thank you very much.